the optimal life. Absolutely. So take us back to the summer of 2003. You're going about your life. You and your husband are doing your thing. And he got a new job at that point. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. Yeah, it's um, August or it's in 2003. We started the year out great. We're, um, it was, I was married to my best friend, Woody, and almost for almost 10 years. And we were just started to talk about having a family. Woody just started a new job um, with a startup company and he loved like anything energy efficient. Um, and, you know, he was a big recycler before they were recycling. So he was pretty excited about this new um, opportunity. And so life was good. I mean, I was traveling the world on productions um, for my business. So that was the beginning. Uh, And then Woody started having trouble sleeping and having trouble sleeping, which is not uncommon for entrepreneurs that wake up in the middle of the night, right? But he was a guy that always needed sleep. So he went and saw his um, GP, his family doctor, and ended up leaving the office with um, a three-week sample pack that automatically doubled the dose of Zoloft, which is an antidepressant. And so, you know, I never thought about it. I don't think Woody ever really gave much thought about it, you know, the drug that he was given. I, in fact, was out of the country on um, a BMW advertising shoot at the time. So I remember coming home and, um, and Woody... I found Woody like walked in the back door. It's like three, you know, three weeks that he's been now on this drug. Um, and he dropped his bag at the back door and started like sat down on the fetal position. He's like with his hands around his head, Kim, you got to help me. I don't know what's happening to me. It's like my head's outside my body looking in and he's like rocking back and forth. And I remember like thinking, first of all, I've never seen this behavior ever from him. Right. And, um, remember trying to tell him um, to, you know, we got him to quiet down and um, breathe and pray and eventually called his doctor to, you know, tell him I've got this thing happening. And the doctor said, uh, you got to give it four to six weeks to kick in. So, you know, Woody, being a good, good patient, um, he was the kind of guy that was always like a Humpty Dumpty. You know, that's why I think he trusted the doctor so much is that they always put him back together. He was a big athlete. And so he did what he was to um, to do. But I'll never forget what happened next. And that is on August 6th, I was out of town on work and I hadn't heard from Woody all day. So I called my dad and I'm like, hey, do me a favor. Will you go check and see, um, you know, I haven't heard from Woody and I know he's been having trouble sleeping. The next thing, um, the next thing I got was a call from um, um, my dad or um, saying, it's bad. It's bad. I'm like, what do you mean? It's bad. And he's like, he's dead. He's dead. And I'm like, what? He's dead. And he's like, what do you mean? I go, what do you mean? And he's like, he's hanging. And in that one phone call, my entire life that I had known, the one that I was planning on going had fallen apart. And, uh, it was, crushing and at the beginning you know when i got that call i remember thinking what like it didn't even make sense like woody was not depressed he didn't have a history of depression he just wasn't able to sleep and um and i remember next and i'll say this because it kind of starts the next phase of my life um the the coroner called and asked that night if he was on any medication 
And the only medication Woody was taking was Zoloft. And she said it's on the kitchen counter. And um, we might take it with us. It, we, um, it may have something to do with his death. And that was kind of clue number one, right? And then ironically, the front page of our Minneapolis paper had an article that said the UK finds link between antidepressants and suicide in teens. That was the same night and mm. there was no note. So in some ways, I think that was my note um, from, from Woody. So a few things there. You go to leave to go out of town. Were you nervous to leave out of town after seeing the episode that he had gone through in the fetal position? No, I didn't. No, you didn't think anything of it. You no, didn't think much of it. Right. Down and every night the next week he would come home. He'd be like, what do you think about acupuncture? What do you think about this? You know, but so he, he was, was kind of back on track. It seemed like, he was like back on track. it and was okay. He, and he was running during this time. Like he, um, cause he was pretty anal. He kept a running journal. And so during this time, he was still running. He just wasn't able to run 10 miles. He was running three miles. So he was still doing things that he was still doing things that people in, in decent mental health states are still doing. The oh, people that are super depressed are the ones that are not running. They're the ones that are in the fetal position. They're the ones that aren't going outside. Absolutely. I, there was not one inkling um, of, or, you know, any kind of, you know, something inside me saying, hey, you shouldn't go. And he never said to you, hey, I'm I'm depressed now with this. Uh, I feel like like taking my life. Nothing along those lines. Nothing. Mm-mm. And the doctor said to you, give it four to six more weeks when they say to kick in, where, meaning like these these episodes will go away. They'll subside. Is that what they meant? No, I think what he, um, you know, the the I, for the drug to work, you need it for four to six weeks for the drug. to. Work. So he still wasn't and, sleeping well in those first few weeks after taking the drugs. Well, you know, I mean, looking back, I mean, I was out of the country the first three weeks he was on the drug. But, um, you know, when I came home, he wasn't still sleeping um, and he, you know, lost weight. But again, I don't think, you know, this is somebody I've been together for 13 years. I never even once even saw it. Like it wasn't even in the realm of possibilities that right. Woody would ever take his life. Which is life. what makes this whole thing so scary. And so disturbing because usually there's signs usually there's a red flag there's signs you know what you're dealing with you had no idea you guys were going about your life your husband was prescribed an antidepressant medicine to help him sleep which i find peculiar um, that they went that route Uh, there's other sleep medications that are out there obviously there's sleep pills there's a lot of different things melatonin i mean you name it go down the list and then you go out of town and you get a phone call from your father who had to witness this horrific thing, seeing your husband hanging in the garage. Wow. You know, I think back to him, I go, boy, he, you know, my dad is still my hero. Um, But, you know, he's a changed person to see something like that. And, Hmm. but he will always say, and he keeps saying that I am glad it was me that saw it and not you. Yes. What a, that, that's, that's a dad. That's a, that's a real dad for you. Yeah. Um, what, did you have regret? Did you, did you have regret for a period of time that you actually left and went out of town? Did you blame yourself? Did you ever think to yourself, had I not gone out of town, this might not have happened. 
I think I got so focused on, you know, when the when the coroner said Zoloft and we had to take it with us. I think I got so focused on that for a while of trying to figure out what the heck just happened, um, as well as just this complete shock that my life had changed. Mm. But as I learned, started learning more, I'm like, why didn't I know? Like, I felt, you know, I do, there'll always be a part of me that wonders, had I not left out of town, um, you know, would I have been able, like, could have I stopped it? And I don't know, because we both traveled, like, so I don't know if that would have ever been a possibility. And, and truthfully, once we started learning, and, you know, that night that my brother, um, that my husband was found my brother-in-law who was married to my sister who eventually became my partner in my advocacy he went home and googled Zoloft and suicide and found out that the FDA had hearings in 1991 on the exact same issue and so you know once I started putting all these pieces together I think it's really hard I you know you can't blame I'm you know I stopped blaming myself um, I stopped I never blamed Woody you know, I felt really sorry, and I will always feel sorry for Woody and all the other people that this has happened to. Um, yeah. But, you know, then I became focused on, we're getting warnings. We had no, we were completely blindsided. We're getting warnings on. So Zoloft, the, the drug, when they were advertising the drug, there was nothing on the drug that said side effects may include X, Y, Z, suicide, et cetera. Nope. At that time in 2003, there were no black box. Um, warnings on these drugs. So we didn't even have the option to even know that it was even a remote possibility. You know, Woody didn't even have that conversation. You know, even the idea of when you go on a drug, we didn't even have this warning. When you first go on an antidepressant, you should be closely monitored uh, for any kind of change in mood, behaviors. We didn't even have that. And we didn't even have the conversation of you know, it's an antidepressant because I kind of feel like looking back, Woody was a super smart guy. He would have questioned that. He would have said, why are you giving me an antidepressant? I just can't sleep. So you then took your advocacy and you went after, I mean, where do you go from there? How do you then say, hey, I, we need to make a change. Did you sue the drug company? Yeah, I had many, I call it my battle for Woody. I had, um, it was multiple prong, I should say. It was um, the lobbying going out to DC and literally starting, um, you know, obviously with that front page article that said the UK is looking at it, it became like, why aren't we looking at it? So we started working with our congressional people and, um, and meeting <clears throat> with um, the House Energy and Commerce Committee that was investigating it. And then there were like, other senators, other families, there were FDA advisory committees. And so that's real. that was one angle is all the DC. Then there was um, a wrongful death failure to warn lawsuit against um, Pfizer. And I remember my brother-in-law contacted this, um, the attorneys that were in LA. And one of the big def deciding factors of who we were going to have represent, well, first of all, this um, law firm has been working on antidepressant suicide um, cases for years. Like, who knew, you know, that there were, um, I don't know if you remember um, uh, Saturday Night Live, um, Phil Hartman, who mm -hmm. was murdered and by his wife, and then his wife killed himself. 
the Pfizer secretly settled those cases. And so this has been a long history that, of course, we didn't know about. But when, um, when we talked to the attorneys in L.A., I said, this is not about money. This is about I want to make change and I will not not tell my story. Um, and they were like completely on board because they were advocate lawyers. Um, and they worked really, really, really hard because they had been doing this for a long time. So they already had um, rooms full of um, documents during, um, discovered in other previous lawsuits. But it, they were used then in my lawsuit and our judge um, released them. So we were able to use them in our advocacy efforts. In fact, I have this binder um, here that is all the documents that these guys have known about the suicide link. They've known about the violence link and um, kept it from the public from well before, um, uh, you know, before Woody, like since the um, early 90s. So what happened in the 90s with the hearings, with the FDA hearings? Were, were, what Obviously, nothing happened from that because 12 years later, there were still no warnings. Yeah, that's so. Um, so in uh, 91, there were FDA hearings, uh, the same hearings that we eventually had in 2004 <laughs> that were um, just Prozac on the market. And there were all these families. If you go and you go look at the footage, it's shocking because it's exactly what eventually happened in 2004. Families came forward and told their loved ones stories or their own personal stories and literally at the end which mind you all the guys that were on this advisory committee um, which is the FDA external advisory committee all took funding from pharma makers of other antidepressants and they voted at the end that they didn't see any association between um, suicide um, the emergence of suicide and violent thinking and what do you so, mean when you say that, that they took funding from other drug makers? What does that mean exactly? Um, so the FDA advisory board committee is an outside board that the advisory, and I'm actually a member of that same committee today um, as the consumer representative. But so these are the people that when there's an issue that the FDA has, they'll call um, an advisory board together and they will listen to whatever it might be. Like in this case, it was like, is there data? Do you guys see that there's any emergence of, you know, linkage to suicide or violent thinking? And so that was the question before them. And so it's a public hearing. People can come forward. The companies, they look at data, they discuss it. And then at the end, they vote. And um, and the people at that point were all advi the advisory board members are outside, you know, people that could fr be from academia, from um uh, researchers, uh, physicians, but they all took um, monies from pharma in some capacity. They all had conflicts of interest. The individuals themselves? The individuals themselves. That's like you sitting on the committee today and getting a check from pick a drug company? Exactly. What were they getting money for? That I don't know, um, but they all, you know, they people did research back then to look at who had money and who was the type, you know, whether it's from speaking engagements, whether it's, you know, now I've learned a whole practice called um, key opinion leaders and ghostwriting where you can like the companies write articles and then they put doctors names on it um, and then it gets published. 
So you there's be- a whole other side of an ugly side of business that I, I had no idea. But I have no idea what they're particular, but they had funding from the companies. So of course it influences like, oh, we don't see anything. We're turn you know, we're gonna look the other way. And at well- the end of that hearing they did recommend that the FDA, um, you know, the FDA told Eli Lilly to study suicidality. They never did. The FDA never followed up. And meanwhile, now comes um, Prozac and Paxil onto the market and gets approved for kids. And so, you know, you think about when that warning eventually got put onto the antidepressants, it was 13 years after the FDA first held hearings. Because the warnings, we eventually did get black box warnings put on the drug for kids up to 18 in 2004. And and then um, young adults, although I always believed it should be all ages, um, in 2006. So you think about how many lives were impacted and affected because they knew. And all it required was just give us a simple warning. Give, like, help us that level set the information. That's all, it, I didn't, I never was one of those people that advocated taking them off the market. There were a lot of people who did back then. That wasn't my, my message was, if you know it is a possibility, give us the information. We had no idea. Woody's doctor had no idea. Instead, he was being educated that, hey, you know what, this drug might help take an edge off and help somebody sleep. Like. I mean, that's, I mean, again, to your original point, there are a lot of things looking back. That would be the last thing I would ever give somebody is an antidepressant for not being able to sleep. You know, how about try breathing, yoga? I mean, there's so many other non-medical ways, you know, first, first. So did they settle the suit? Did you win the suit? Did they settle? How did that go? Yeah, it eventually got resolved, but not before it was really, really, really ugly. Um, So Pfizer worked with somebody who was at the FDA, they would use this thing called preemption brief. And people don't realize the history there. He, um, this guy, Dan Troy, worked on the outside of the, um, the, you know, the government. He eventually got appointed into um, the FDA as chief counsel. But he took $300,000 from Pfizer before he took this position. And he was able to craft, craft something. He was the mastermind behind um, something called the preemption um, brief, the amicus brief, that he basically, it was an FDA saying, even if the drug company wanted to warn, we as the FDA wouldn't allow them because we have the, you know, we have the ultimate say on the label. And so a lot of companies, so Pfizer was using this brief in a lot of their lawsuits and getting it thrown, the lawsuits thrown out. And they tried it twice in my case, and um, the federal judge saw right through it. And at that point, um, you know, they, they knew that there was nothing they had that. Um, so they eventually, when did how many years did that take you? Uh, that was like um, 2006. So like okay. not not super long. But, you know, I look back at my deposition I had with Pfizer. Um, you know, they had me for, you know, what, nine hours. And the first half of the deposition, all they wanted to know was who knew what where. They wanted to know who knew what in D.C. How did I meet Senator Grassley? How did I get the Minnesota AG involved? And it, they want it was like they used their time to intel, um, you know, what 
what's happening out in the world of what where I was playing out in DC. What do you think that was doing for them? What were they using that information to ultimately do? Um, ultimately, they wanted to know where everything was at um, because there were a lot of other lawsuits were happening. They wanted to know if I knew, um, if I was giving information to this person, and of course, I'm under you know I'm under oath. And right. I realized at that point, like halfway through, I remember saying, "Can I ask you a question?" And she was like, "I mean, I was super, mad. I was super like because I had just gotten back from another overseas production, so I was kind of." I'm tired. And I also I said, can I ask you a question? She said, no, we're asking the questions. And I said, I want to know, I don't know what this, and I go, okay, fine. I don't, I will start it over by saying, I don't know what this line of questioning has to do with my husband's death. You've not asked me one question about Woody. Not one he, question. He, he was just, he was just a number to them. They didn't care about that. Really? They didn't care about him. Right. And that was my, I remember, and then they started asking, like, ridiculous, insulting questions, but. Um, like what? What was one one that sticks out? Oh, they wanted to know, like, you know, they, of course, are trying to get, like, do you have money problems? Do you have marital problems? Do you, you know. Um, stuff, that know mean, that, stuff that's meaningless to the issue at hand, right. Yeah, completely. Like, I'm like, no. And then, you know, they would go and find out. They went and interviewed my neighbors or sent out investigators and they're like, oh, is, he's always sweeping his driveway. He might have OCD. And I like, I about laughed when they brought that question up is, does he have OCD? I'm like, mm -hmm. OCD? Like what? So I think they were like trying to do anything they could to like then position it like it was on Woody. And I was like, of course, the wrong guy. So how did you feel, Kim? You get the judgment after years of this. You've been going through a devastating two, three years at this point. Your life has been flipped upside down. You finally get through it and you win this verdict or the settlement, whatever happens. How did you feel that day? Did that make you whole or were you still empty? No, it, I have to say it's, I still felt empty. You know, I felt empty because it wasn't about that. You know, I still went home. And I still didn't have Woody. I still, like, my life just got thrown up, um, upside down. And it didn't take away, it didn't take away any of what happened. Like, and it was still continuing. And what, and at that point, you know, I thought it was just an isolated issue with antidepressants. But what I realized, it was actually our whole systemic issue of how drugs and the post-market safety is a systemic problem in our country. So really what it ended up doing is, um, you know, that part of my life didn't, you know, Woody didn't come back. Uh, that the legal stuff was out. I got all, I had all the documents and I had years of experience and they didn't get to do the most important thing, which was, you know, like what they like to do is take away the right to tell your story. Mm. And I'm still telling, you know, I'm still telling Woody's story almost over 19 years later. And it's not about it's not about Woody anymore. It's way bigger than Woody. So then, of course, COVID comes out these last several years. And then then the vaccines, here they come. And then you see this every other every major news station, network, TV, you turn on TV, brought to you by Pfizer, brought to you by Pfizer. This is brought to you. by Every single network is brought to you by Pfizer. What was going on with you as you're seeing this stuff? What is, what are, how are you handling? You're already dealing with COVID. How are you handling brought to you by Pfizer every which way you look? 
Oh my God. Well, that was, I mean, well, first of all, I, being that my background's advertising and marketing, I saw a lot of this from the beginning as a bunch of, you know, like the fear starting. And then I saw the vaccine and then like knowing about the rush to market, the EUA, and that we weren't helping people that were actually sick. We were telling them to go home. But if there was a drug on the market, they could never get the EUA um, to get the drug, you know, the vaccine approved. Then I started watching all this crazy, like, bring in, get your vax card and get a donut a day for a year from Krispy Kreme. And then I was like, wait, this is like sales promotion. This is like marketing. And so um, then watching the actual trials from the vaccine, everybody knows like you don't lose the placebo group. And after they did two months worth Pfizer, I mean, Pfizer like notoriously has, you know, paid more fees on mass settlements. Um, so like right there was a red flag and, you know, my own personal experience. But when I saw that they walked away from the placebo group under this idea that it's ethically right, I was like, no, like, I'm sorry if you join a, a clinical trial, that's part of the deal. You might get the drug, you might not get the drug. And we needed that because we still, these original clinical trials are still going on right now, but we have no nothing to compare it to other than the people who are in the real world. So I watched this um, and could see right through it. And then when mandates started and it became like such a, and that there was only one type of science and you couldn't question. If you questioned you know, even asked questions, which I have learned has been the beauty of my advocacy is like, huh, that doesn't make sense. And you just keep asking. And then what I know about science is that it's always about teasing it out, keep challenging, re-challenging, teasing a concept out. But it was, we weren't able to even do that. There was no dialogue. It was only, this is the way it is, period. Mm. And as you say, it, it just follow the money trail. Mm -hmm. That's that's at the end of the day, Kim, is that all this is really all about, whether it was the drug back in 91, all the way to 2006, when they finally said, OK, we'll put the warnings on. Is it all about we need to make as much profit as we potentially can? It is always about follow the money. And that was something that Woody used to always tell me, if you want to get to the bottom of anything, just follow the money trail. And so um, since then, I call it now the spider web, um, and it's the influence of pharma on the entire system, right? And it's everything from the, um, the, the med schools that our doctors are being taught at. Like if, med, you know, if they don't learn this critical thinking aspect of how, you know, like what is ghostwriting? What is key opinion leaders? How are you being manipulated, right? They don't know that they're part of it. Then there are like the patient groups that show up, you know, a lot of those patient groups and big disease advisory groups are really, they get so much funding from pharma that they become an extension of the marketing department. Then you look at who's funding fact checkers, like especially what we've seen now, like a lot of the fact checkers are being um, paid or their funding comes somehow through pharmaceutical or a foundation that receives funding. So it is the big spider web of the influence of money. This is like the mother of all monopolies. 
it is completely like the mother. But you know, it's funny. I look at, um, you know, you look at big tobacco because I was just working on a presentation. So I was in some of the old documents of tobacco and it's kind of the same. They're playing off the same playbook. You know, it's a lot of the same playbook. And, you know, I think the difference is we've trusted the system way more as people because, you know, it's our bodies and it will be, and we forget that we have so much knowledge ourselves if we take a step back and, you know, think about our own health, but we've given our power away and it's yeah. time that we get our power back. And well, we've also given away our ability to think independently. It seems like now so more than ever. Oh, we've, we've, I, we allow whatever we see on TV or social media some kind of post. People don't even really read the details. They read the headlines. They maybe read a subtitle, the first few sentences of a paragraph, and they're like, oh, they make their decision right yeah. then and there. And Absolutely. people have lost the ability to think for themselves. And when you say, guys, look at what's going on, take a look at the money trail. Take a look at why is this being forced down our throats? Why do so many people want us to get the vaccine when getting the natural disease itself is much more potent, much more protective when you're talking about antibody buildup, future uh, effects, mitigated effects from the next time you get it, et cetera. Uh, we've lost our ability to think. And to me, this virus, COVID really, this was more of a mind virus. I yeah. mean, obviously it was a real virus, but the government and society and marketing and pharma and all this um, gave this society such a mind virus that to your point, if you even questioned them, you were like, you were the devil. Absolutely. You were automatically. And so you're, that's exactly right. I feel like as a society, we quickly want to identify with somebody. We just, we don't go dig deeper. We, um, and then if they are somebody that disagrees with us, then we're like, oh, they're anti, like here, you're anti-science, you're anti, um, you know, you're anti-vaxxer. I'm like, what does that even like? I don't even get it. Like name calling, but I look back um, and I had to uh, go through it with the antidepressants because I have been called a Scientologist because, you know, looking back, you know, Tom Cruise and the Scientology, they've known the issues about antidepressants. So if you questioned, you were one of those. And so I was a Scientologist. So I've been called everything. And all it really is, is called critical thinking. It's like taking a step back and just do your own research and you can ask questions and maybe agree and not agree, but it's okay if we don't agree, right? Like that's, but now it's like, you're bad and you're killing grandma and you better stay away. Right. And now they don't want to talk about all the people that have been boosted, double boosted, triple boosted, vaxxed, and people are still dying and falling down from other things that they've never seen before. So yeah. Maybe you don't die from COVID, but now you've compromised your body to be susceptible yeah. to something else. They don't want to talk about it. Nobody wants to talk about that because, again, brought to you by Pfizer, brought to you by Pfizer, brought to you by Pfizer. Yeah. Um, it's amazing work that you're doing. I know this has become your life's mission. What's what's that? Look at your crystal ball. I've got a couple more questions for you. We'll finish up. Crystal ball. You, we went through you've gone through some crazy stuff. And then, of course, COVID, as we just talked about. What's next? What is what is five, 10 years from now? What, what What's the next thing that you see happening? Well, I have a vision for this being 
the thing, um, the COVID being the situation that shined the light, cracked the camel back, that we as a society take a step back and maybe the system that we've been under doesn't work, right? And so we should, it's a time to envision and also putting the power back into ourselves and doing, and really what, what is health and what is well-being? It's very different than right now we have a sick model, sickness model that keeps us sick, right? So that's where I hope that this creates um, new opportunity, new way of like bringing in some of the, um, you know, functional medicine, the natural, um, the natural type, um, you know, way approaches. Um, so that's what I would love to see. I also would hope that as a society, we have learned something to um, stand up when something doesn't feel right. We've seen, you know, I think a lot of people's eyes have been awakened, um, you know, and I hope that that is where we go. And at, and I think it starts before we even do that, it still starts with us. And are we willing to look at ourselves and our role? And I'm hoping that that's what people do. So you're optimistic. You, you actually are looking at this as maybe a great reset. The people may have woken up to the manipulation. Yep. For lack I, of a better word. I, I'm an optimist by nature, but I, and I'm not being Pollyanna. Um, I choose to like put my focus. I want to go there Mm. because this is a really ugly place. What we're currently seeing. And I now work a lot with the Vax injured who are being completely um, silenced, gaslit, censored. And it is, beyond anything you would do to humans seeing humans. And I think we need to get back to seeing people as people. And, you know, that is what I want to see because where we're at right now is too dark that I cannot stay here. Uh, Kim, have you found love again since Woody's passing? Um, I have. Um, I have. I was in a long-term relationship. We ended it. And so now I'm back, um, but I learned a lot of lessons from, <laughs> from that. And, I, you know, I think it's what I realized every time you get to a chance to love, your heart gets a little bigger. Um, and it had to be difficult. It has to be a really tremendously difficult process for someone to lose a loved one at a young age. He was late 30s. And then you get thrown out there and starting over and then trying to open your heart again. But uh, I'm glad that you have. And I assume it will continue to expand over time. Well, yeah, I was going to say it's a little bit harder when, you know, it's one thing when you were single in your 20s, um, which is when I met Woody. It's a little bit harder as you get older, but you realize realize that um, everybody has something Mm -hmm. at this point. And again, I go back to... um, kind of it's my philosophy are you a victim a survivor or a thriver and that's something i need to suss out right away because if you're like a victim and everything's bad like i can't i just can't have that in my life so anyways absolutely victim survivor or thriver we like the thrivers those those are the people we want to gravitate towards absolutely um people want to learn more about you your mission your work connect with you Where, where can they find you online uh, can Kim Um, also Woody matters. I have both websites 
as well as I do a lot of my stuff on Twitter. I haven't been kicked off yet on Twitter. Um, <laughs> That's a good thing. That's um, a good it thing. is. And, and, you know, I'm a little, the other stuff is like my fun personal life. You know, I like to still balance. Um, I'm still in advertising. Uh, I couldn't to do this job a hundred percent of the time. I need to have it a little bit. I still like to know what's happening in advertising and marketing because it also influenced because I know what's happening in the world of Yep, they can't pull one past you, that's for sure. Yeah, it's, <laughs> you, you know. It very clearly. Hey, um thank you for sharing your story and uh continue blessings and success to you. Thank you so much for having me.